Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. G'day, good evening, good morning. My name is Adam Jones. Today we are doing a book by Dr. Carl, The Universe and Everything. Yeah, he's Dr. Carl, he's a well-known Australian scientist guy, but like popular scientist, like, uh, you know, on the, on the radio stations here and on TV shows and stuff and like, cool dude, just able to, I guess, communicate full-on scientific ideas to mm. the general public. Yeah, it's good stuff. How do you um, pronounce your surname? Um, I don't have a crack. It's K-R-U-S-Z-E-L-N-I-C-K-I. Kruznelicki. Kruznelicki. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> but, but Dr. Carl. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Carl. Carl. He's known as Dr. Carl. Obviously, is, I think this is his 41st book, I think, something like that. unbelievable. It's crazy. I think he does at least one every year. And so this book is like 33 different short little stories between, I don't know, six to 10 pages each of 33 different scientific concepts and new ideas and stuff broken down into some pretty simple language for everyone to enjoy and understand. Mm. He's definitely a very curious brain. And oh, yeah. he, he gets into the real intricate kind of details about these scientific things and and yeah, points out what's, what's to him is really interesting as well. Yeah. He knows so much stuff just off the top of his dome. So like like the radio stations, people will call in and ask questions and he'll just fucking know know everything yep. so we've sort of picked out our seven or eight favorite sections from the book that we'll sort of rehash so one i liked was number two the coffee nap so he says that essentially if you're low on energy or if you're tired there's two things that can fix it either a coffee or a nap and dr carl says there's a way that you can like time it perfectly um to get the just ultimate performance boost. Yeah, so if you have the coffee a little bit too early and then you have a nap after 30 minutes when the coffee kicks in, then you probably won't be able to fall asleep. But if you, you time it right, you can get the best of both worlds. So he says that we've got this sleep debt, which is essentially built up from constantly and consistently not getting enough sleep. So each day you might add 10 or 20 minutes to your overall sleep debt. Now he says coffee doesn't help that at all. It can help with short-term sleepiness but it doesn't do anything for sleep debt and the only way to do sleep debt is to to sleep gradually pay it off yep and that's with uh with with naps yeah in this theory anyway so he says that caffeine doesn't hit your system straight away so he said it has to pass through the stomach it has to hit your small intestine then it goes to be processed by the liver and then into your bloodstream and it takes like 45 minutes for the caffeine to be peak levels in your bloodstream. So essentially, if you smash a cough, have a 30-minute nap, when you wake up from the nap, you're energized from the nap, but you're also coming into peak caffeine um, concentration time. So that's sort of like the best of both worlds. So literally smash it, 30-minute nap, wake up, Refresh from the nap, also hitting maximum caffeine and just fucking go bananas for half an hour. Mate, the catch here is you got to be able to nap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> you got to be able to just like lie down and straight away fall asleep. Can yeah. you do that? No. No, me either. No, I'm not a But napper. if you can, then this is probably something for you. Yeah, I, don't, I feel like you couldn't do it every day. I feel like it's like a, a once-off or like once in a month if you need to seriously smash something out. Yeah, absolutely life-optimized hack. And if you do yeah. this, you <laughs> yeah. will just absolutely kill it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the next one I really liked was number six, which is hydrothermal vents and invisible mountain range. So it's really interesting to think that there are strange life forms on Earth that actually don't need the sun to survive. So they survive in a, hot, a fully hostile environment on a mountain range deep below the Earth's surface. So by hydrothermal, what he's talking about is hydro means water and thermal means heat. So these hydrothermal vents release all this heat, which is deep underground, um, deep beneath the Earth's the the, the water surface, mm. and it can get up to like hundreds and hundreds of degrees temperature, well above boiling point. But because the the pressure at this um, 
place beneath the surface, it stays as liquid. Mate, you said this is the biggest mountain range on Earth and it's invisible because it's underwater. I, I don't think I even knew about it. Basically, you're saying that, like, I think the circumference of the Earth around the equator is about 40,000 kilometers and this uh, this mountain range underwater is about eight. 80,000 kilometers and it goes essentially like down from between like Europe and America down around the bottom of Africa and back up around the bottom of Australia back up the uh, west of like America and essentially up and down around all the continents and it's just uh, yeah really um, long really just continuous the whole way around the globe that's mm. like a big mountain underwater. So they first found these things in 1949 in the Red Sea. So there was the salty hot water that was uncomfortably warm. <laughs> then, they found, uh, then they found a biological um, ecosystem around this in, in this hot spring. So this is the first time they really discovered life that wasn't, wasn't <laughs> dependent on... <laughs> mate, Ashto in the nose here has put in green pussy. Oh, mate, I didn't put that in there. It says you green put... pussy, blue pussy. <laughs> I think you put that in there and didn't delete it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, so that was the first time in 1949. And then later in 1979, they found ones that are up to 380 to 464 degrees. And so this came out as black water. So under these huge pressures, it obviously can't um, boil and and turn into gas. It turns into black. And with Mm. this, it releases all these these minerals. So the the life forms down there can... um, can really thrive off it. Mate, so there's like a potential... A few people are saying maybe it's a theory that this is where like life on Earth began at these deep underwater, these things that's sucking in this black hot um, stuff being released by these vents and maybe then eventually evolved from there. But one of the things down there is these tube worms that he says is like the thickness of your arm and they're like two metres long, um, no mouth, no anus, mm. just somehow sucking in these this hot black water for for minerals and energy and shit. It's unbelievable because I guess the, the building blocks of, of life down there to, or evolution is under completely different, I guess, um, you know, primary building blocks, I'd say. So fully counterintuitive kind of life forms coming up, not the ones that, you know, we're used to on, on, on Earth here. Yeah, exactly. And that sort of leads into number seven, life on Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn. Yeah, and he's saying that... Dr. Carl reckons this is the first place we're going to find life beyond Earth because it's sort of got all these building blocks that we see deep underwater at these hydrothermal vents. Exactly. So obviously all the way back down at, at this moon, it doesn't have enough sun to get the energy mm. to, to power life. So this might be similar to deep under the water of Earth where here there's like the, the hydrothermal vents. So you've got rocks, minerals and warm water that are suggesting that strongly suggesting he says that there's life in in this place in our solar system so how do we know their events so he found so scientists have found nanoparticles in the range of four to 16 nanometers and only rocks in this range can be formed through extreme heat uh-huh. and then they also found that through some weird testing of like the, i guess the gravitational pull of, of the moon on saturn that there has to be liquid water below so there's obviously a heat to keep it above uh-huh. above freezing and then above it's well below freezing so there's this this warm kind of layer of water with a lot of minerals and stuff like that so there could be some really interesting life forms there yeah exactly so that's one of the reasons that there could be life the other reason is because it is an ocean of salty liquid water uh he says that he thinks there are hydrothermal vents there that they call the tiger stripes which we'll get to in a sec and essentially this moon has this rocky core in the middle which has got things that we think are critical to life. So things like sodium, 
phosphorus, nitrogen, stuff like that that will dissolve into water. This like chemical soup, this things that could create life and that potentially is how life started on Earth. Yeah. So in 2005, one of the one of the satellites or one of the um what do you call it, our spaceships or whatever, yeah. was traveling past and then they saw these frozen water like spurting out these yeah. three uh, deep stripes, like three tiger stripes kind of thing on the moon. So obviously it went from liquid and then goes kilometers and kilometers into the air and then with that, all these other building blocks of life as well. And it sounds fucking intense, just these shoots of ice shooting kilometers up in, into the air. Yeah. Powerful shit. So there's another reason why they, there might be heat and this is liquid is because... Saturn, the massive gravitational pull onto the moon creates this friction on on the the surface of the moon, and then this huge friction creates the heat. Nice, um, mate, interesting. So, yeah, that's crazy, and that's why Carl says that he reckons the first Earth will be uh, first life uh, beyond Earth will be. And so the next one, sort of tying in with this space theme, we're going to jump around a bit with these numbers. They're all sort of standalone sections. So number twenty was space junk. Now, Carl said there's clouds of orbiting space junk traveling at hypersonic speeds uh, just fucking absolutely everywhere, um, which was wild. I didn't realize. But he says like the International Space Station has been threatened on 16 occasions. It had to turn on its rocket boosters to evade incoming space junk. The space shuttle that flies up to fuel the International Space Station has to replace its windshield every second flight because microscopic junk is just pounding the windscreen mm. and even some fully functional spacecrafts and satellites have been completely destroyed because they've been smashed by a big hunk of junk yeah and then one hunk of junk hits another hunk of junk and you got mm. thousands of hunk of junk and yeah. it kind of grows exponentially yeah but with that you know it might be something as small as a can of coke but when it's traveling at the speeds it does oh, in, yeah. in in orbit then it's enough to like smash through through any space station yeah it's crazy man and he says that um that's estimated there are about 5,000 tons of space junk orbiting Earth. So he says that we've had 5,000 space launches. Each one has sent off fuckloads of junk. So a couple of things each time that whether it's uh, bits of the spaceship flying off or other things that have been shot up into space, uh, leading to 30,000 large objects floating around uh, orbiting Earth. So he says that most of it burns up in the atmosphere, but a surprising amount actually comes back down to Earth and makes contact with the ground. He said that over the last 50 years, we've averaged one a day. So mm. one a day for 50 years of shit that's come down back from space and hit Earth. Didn't it that's hit a someone, lot. It's, somewhere in, the, in the, the chapter, it talks about it, it hit someone on the head. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that cunt's dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it talks about how global warming is prolonging the life of space junk. Yeah. And it's one of those issues as well where where if you're, say, one country and you go out and, and you release space junk, you're not going to care for the for the whole. There's mm. no individual to take responsibility for it. Yeah, it's like because, a big externality. Yeah, exactly right. He says that because like, of global warming, the lower atmosphere is getting hotter, but that means in turn that the upper atmosphere is getting cooler, meaning there's less uh, dense, meaning there's less friction. So when something gets shot off into space, because there's less friction up there, it doesn't burn off as much, meaning it's still bigger um, when it gets out there and hence it lives longer. So Carl said, the, so there were three proposals, one from Europe, one from the US and one from Japan as different ways that they can solve this space junk. So the European proposal was to have like essentially a space tugboat. So it goes up, it grabs a big lump of junk and then it like comes back and throws it in a downward trajectory into Earth so fast that it burns up in the atmosphere. That sounds risky if it doesn't burn <laughs> up. It's just coming for us. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, what about the US proposal? Number two, the US proposal was a big solid shield. So the size of a football field that so it's like this big shield and then the space junk just keeps smashing through it. But mate, the issue with that is I don't know what material they're gonna use. <laughs> How are they gonna do something that's meant to stop it? Yeah. If it <laughs> If you got the solid steel, I'm guessing you have a pretty solid material. The space station is just destroyed by it. Then how is this football field gonna gonna do it? Yeah, I, yeah, it doesn't make a lot Maybe of sense. Maybe one for Carl. Yeah, mate. And then and the another one is from Japan and Australia, and so they said that you go up, you have this big piece of like metal, like a metal string, like 300 meters long. You somehow attach it to the space junk, and then you use magnets to attract the string, which then slows down. The space mm. junk. So that was a, th- mate. They all sound fucking intense. Just so <laughs> such bizarre out there ideas. And they don't seem like they, they any of them are going to be very effective. <laughs> so I guess for all of them, it, it could be a real issue. This, this space yeah. junk issue. And so you know, as we're speaking right now, there's more space junk colliding. It's more and more and mm. more, and to the point where it you know it could be almost impossible for our satellites to to go up. That's crazy, man. It's like the uh, the floating island of junk in the Pacific. What's that? Man, it's just like all the shit that's just washed out into sea. And because of the currents around the world, they all meet in one place. So there's just this big chunk of floating. Really? Matt, well, let's, let's ask Carl about it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think it's big. Mm. And it's just like plastic and shit floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, unbelievable. So the next one I really liked was lightning power, which is number 12. So jumping off the space theme for a bit. So, so Carl had this thought, you know, why don't we capture this lightning that's pounding down billions and billions of times on Earth? Mm. And in short, the answer is there isn't enough lightning to power the earth. Yeah, essentially, even though there is like each bolt of lightning has got so much energy and there are so many bits of lightning going off, it still is like nowhere near enough, like compared to the amount of energy humans use every single Mm. second. Yeah, totally. So he talks about the actual physics of how lightning is created, which is quite interesting. So a few of the main elements that you need is, first of all, you need air moving rapidly upwards. So this will be in, in the form of, of hot air, and as we know, hot air rises. But at the same time, you need freezing cold temperatures between 15 and 25 below zero. So with that, you've got three types of water for these conditions. You've got, you got, first of all, liquid water that is super cool. So even though it's below zero degrees, it's still a liquid. Number two, you need small crystals of hail, which is solid frozen ice, obviously. But number three, there are larger, heavier blobs of hail called a grawpel. So with that, it's a, it's, it's a, <laughs> he kind of has a black box here where he just says, through a complicated process. <laughs> Some shit just goes on. <laughs> but essentially what happens, so the grawpel, which is the heavier one, runs into these smaller types of water, small hail. And because the air is rising, this hot air, the hot air is taking this small hail and super cool water to the top of the the, the storm or the, or the of the cloud, and that's got a positive charge. Then the grawpel, which goes down below, it's got a negative charge. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, now the ground beneath the earth is got a positive charge as well. So you got the negative charge with the grawpel at the bottom of the cloud, and then the and then with that, you got the difference in charges, and then bam, bam, lightning. Fucking. Mate, there's a few lightning stats I had here. You said that there's 1.4 billion lightning bolts each year, which I thought was fucking. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah, mate. He also said in 2016, lightning killed about 38 people. That's a bloody lot as well. Mm. He says that over your lifetime, your odds of being hit are one in three thousand. Thirty. That's not a lot, mate. Like I 38 think... in in the world. No, in in the US, he said oh. it was a thousand people in India. Um, in 2016, 
Mate, you said lot, yes, mate, mate. one in three thousand chance of getting hit by lightning. I reckon that's, that's high. That's yeah, actually, high, it man. Is high. Yeah, one in three thousand chance of being hit by lightning. So you got, you know, you got say three thousand people in lightning. your high school or whatever. Yeah. One of those dudes you saw every <laughs> day gets, gets, hit. gets struck by lightning. And die. <laughs> I reckon that's high. I think I've got about fifteen hundred Facebook friends. It's almost like yeah, one of those. One of be... you are going to die <laughs> from lightning. No, not die. Just get hit. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bloke, he's going to be walking his dog. <laughs> <laughs> and mate, Carl said uh, that before he crunched the numbers, he thought that you know the lightning would be enough. You know, 1.4 billion bolts here. If you could somehow capture it, it'd be enough. But he worked out that it's really actually just enough to boil a kettle. Everyone in the world a kettle each day. Yeah. So it's just like you can't get through a whole day with lightning power. It's just like you get one cup of tea from mm. all the lightning power in the world. Mate, one interesting fact about lightning that I didn't understand or didn't know about beforehand was the return stroke. So after lightning hits the ground at 200 kilometers per second, there's actually an upward lightning strike with a lot more power and a lot more amps. Mm, it's yeah. actually traveling at 100,000 kilometers per second. So yeah, that was that? crazy. It's like 500 times the speed and, so you're saying, and the power. Did you say that lightning goes down and then it goes up the next lot and the next one's way more intense? Yeah, but That's we just crazy. don't see it because it's at such a speed and you know such an intensity as well. Wow. Mate, hit us with some shit. Yeah, mate. So Carl, so Carl was reading... This is number three, poo in 12 seconds. Carl was reading one day uh, just on Facebook and it, there was a clickbait article. It said, all mammals poo in 12 seconds. And Carl was like, no way that a mouse and an elephant poos for the same amount of time. But anyway, he got sucked in um, and he fell for it. But he realized that he was just reading an absolute bullshit article. So he said, the article says the average mouse poo is 300 grams and the average elephant poo is four tons. But like a mouse weighs 20 grams, so it can't have a 300 gram shit. And an elephant weighs seven tons, so it's not going to do a four ton shit. Yep. So Carl knew that it was bullshit straight away, but he wants to actually find the real facts. So some of the real facts is about 10% of the mass of the food we eat turns into shit. Yeah. 58% of the energy is used for activity. 32% is used to fuel and operate our, our body. And the daily poo weight is about 1% of the, of the mass. Yeah. So I guess... Yeah, if you're 100 kilos, you're doing one kilo of shit each day. That's a lot of shit, isn't it? That's a big, it's a big but, turd. But yeah, you said one, 1% each day of your weight is, is poo. And so rather than this thing that every single animal poos for 12 seconds, he found that most poo between 5 and 19 seconds. Um, so most animals poo in under 20 seconds. But what was interesting, that bigger animals, they poo a lot more. So you'd think it would take longer, but they also poo faster, which is what evens it out. Mm. So this is an elephant poos six centimeters per second a human poos two centimeters per second and a dog poos uh one centimeter per second mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting stuff <laughs> it's not life-changing but yeah. it's not gonna <laughs> it's not like an epic daring great leap <laughs> get in the fucking arena yeah exactly <laughs> but there you go yeah so you shit yeah two centimeters per second so yeah. if you ever need a two centimeters per second if you ever need a, i don't know if you what's an average poo 10 to 12 centimeters that's no that's a big is it? Big Mama. That's a... That's a... Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, there you go. So, the next one <laughs> he was talking about is the solar energy payback time. So, this is the myth that... So, it takes a certain amount of energy to produce a mm. solar panel. So, in the um, embodied energy of, say, the materials, it, it has an impact on the environment. So, a lot yeah. of people in the past, and they're probably like the fossil, fossil fuel lobbyists actually... Yeah. Have lobbied that you know it takes so much energy to produce the panel. There's no point even having it. Yeah. But it turns out that Carl says over its life you get nine to nineteen times as much energy back as it does take to make them. 
Yeah. So basically, he said that all these climate change deniers are just saying, no, no, fuck, you know, solar energy, it's it's like so inefficient that it's you're wasting too much energy just to make them that it's worthless. But he said that generally, depending on which parts of the world you're in and depending how much cloud cover there is, uh, it depends on how quickly it gets paid back. But the best case, he says, in Perth, um, essentially solar panels have a life of 25 years. In Perth, in Australia, lots of sun, not much cloud. It takes 19 months to pay back. And in Brussels, um, which is the most cloud cover, it takes 40 months. So on the worst case, it's taking three and a half years to pay back the energy it took to make. And then you've got another 21 and a half years of just um, clean energy coming from the sun that is already paid back and that's just essentially energy profit. Yeah, so solar panels operate for at least 25 years in their warranty and on the 25th year, they are 80% operational still, which, mm. is, which is bloody good. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I'd say it's only going to get better. Like mm. Solar City, Elon Musk is going to fucking save the world with much better, more efficient ones, yeah? Yeah, and there's another one coming through. He's like clear glazing solar windows. It's mm. a little bit off, off topic, but... But that's the idea that I guess you get a clear window, but then at the same time, it's producing solar energy. Yeah. So what that means for, I guess, medium to high-rise buildings as well, it's because at the moment, if you only can fit solar on top of the building, then you can't really get much in. But if, yeah. all of a sudden, if you've got all the, the four surfaces around mm. producing energy, it could be an absolute game changer as well. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Mm. So basically, fossil fuels, they need to go. If you can start generating from buildings in the city, 40-story buildings, all glass, at the same time, sucking in energy. Mm. Yeah. Mate, fossil fuel can't stand like that shit, though. <laughs> listen to our, um, John and, and, and Joel. If we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, love it, mate. So, the last one I want to talk about is probably just more an annoying one. It's called earworms. So, he says that an earworm, it's a small piece of music that squirms into your brain and won't go away. So, it's the things that you listen to a song for 10 seconds on the radio and for the rest of the day, all you can do is sing that song in your head. Yeah. So, a good example was earlier as we were just doing our, <laughs> doing our notes. I was having a quick shower yeah. and I heard Ashto playing Bad Romance by Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. And like, you know, I only heard a five-second snippet. <laughs> and I hate the this song. I fucking don't think it's a good song at all. <laughs> then I just started singing it in the shower. I started walking around the house. <laughs> Mate, I gotcha. It was a full earworm. Mate, because I think that's the number one earworm, Bad Romance, Lady Gaga. Mm. And that you, I was listening to it in the lounge room. You in the shower, you heard 10 seconds and then I stopped it. And then five minutes later, you were singing it. Yeah. So, man, it's, I didn't even know you were doing it. It's phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> so, he says there's a few, I guess, uh, characteristics of an earworm. So, one, it has to be part of a listener's culture. So, if we played um, Bad Romance by Lady Gaga to someone who'd never heard it before, it wouldn't work. Mm. It's only because everyone uh, at whatever year it came out, late 2000 and so, I don't know, whenever it was, that because it was oh, on mate, the radio... Don't act like or, you don't know Lady Gaga. <laughs> mate, I went, to the, I went to her concert last time. She was really? in Melbourne. Mate, it was fucking phenomenal. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, because everyone heard it. Everyone was, it was on the radio five times a day. Everyone, everything was playing. Everyone was talking about Lady Gaga because it was part of our culture. Uh, it works on us. Mm. He says also, usually they're a bit faster and usually has a lot of repetition and it helps if it's a bit unusual or does something unexpected. So, there's a few solutions mm. to these, these earworms because they're a pain in the ass. <laughs> the first one, you can, you can actually just chew gum. Yeah. So, the brain pathways used for chewing gum repeatedly are the same as repeating music in our head. So, mm. if, you, if your brain's used up doing eating chewy, then mm. it, it won't be able to sing Lady Gaga to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. One extreme is to just play the song over and over and over and over until it just loses all impact. <laughs> 
Mate, that's a risk, I reckon. It could go the other way. Mate, you have to listen to then three days of bad romance on loop. Yeah, it could go the other way. It could go the other way. And the third one is the opposite. Go cold turkey and don't listen to it at all. And alternative is is to flood with a bunch of other songs that don't have catchy earworms. Yeah, exactly. So, that's sort of your solutions. Mate, so I reckon instead of a song, let's just... There's a list of the top 10 earworms. Maybe we'll just take a 10-second snippets of each and chuck them together at the end. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but we'll be speaking to Dr. Carl. Uh, I think some of the things we want to focus on... I think we talked about some of the best stuff in the book, but Life Beyond Earth, um, things about climate change things about the in, bit more space junk stuff that's probably the stuff I want to talk to Dr. Carl about definitely so yeah it's a good it's it's a good book if you're as curious as Carl mm. it's you know you'd absolutely love the book it's not going to change your life yeah but it will arouse your curiosity if you if you're that way inclined if you know a lot about science as well it's probably not you not won't good, learn much nah. but if you're just a general person like I am um, it will give you a good taste of a lot of different things yeah so yeah good stuff big doc big doctor A small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train Going anywhere Hi-ho, hi-ho It's home from work we go 